You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those in the seats in front of you, and you can find Matthew 11 on page 816, the area code of Kansas City, Missouri. That's how I remembered it when I memorized it, but it's 816. Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to begin, and this message is really 12 years in the making. I remember that when I was getting ready to start as a pastor, I had some veteran pastors tell me, you just wait, you're going to need a sabbatical. I'd never been at a church where our pastor had taken a sabbatical. I wasn't familiar with the concept. A sabbatical is an extended period of time that the leadership of the church and the church family gives to a pastor or to a leader to be able to get away with their family, to recalibrate and renew their relationship with Christ and to be refreshed to come back and hit the ground running. And so our elders have decided graciously to extend to the Terrell family a sabbatical. I met a couple who this was their first Sunday and they're like, well, Nice to meet you. We'll see you in September. So uh, this is, if this is your first Sunday, I know that might be an odd and shocking thing to you, but I hope to unpack why we're doing this, and that's really what this message is. You know, we started preparing for this sabbatical about three years ago and started doing some research of what other churches do. We had a spreadsheet to fill of some amazing preachers that are going to be with us this summer. We'll highlight those in the family chat, and I hope that I still have a job when I come back. They are amazing men and amazing preachers. We also had to figure out what would happen with the staff when the leader of the staff was not here. We had to also, as a family, figure out where are we going to go and who's going to watch our house and our dog for us and figure out what the objective is of our summer. And that's really what led me to this, because the objective of the summer that our elders have given us is to rest. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of different ways people can rest. And so I thought, well, Lord, I need to understand what the theology of rest is, and I've been studying it, and I want to share that with you. So you see the title in your notes. It is a theology of rest that we are going to study. And I had a a friend tell me as he knew I was going to become a pastor to be very careful about using words like theology in a sermon. Because he said if you use big words like that, there will be a significant percentage of your church that will say, I don't want to be a part of an academic church like this. But I want to give you a definition of theology that I hope will shape and frame not only what we're going to do this morning but the way we think about life. So here's the definition of theology. I would invite you to write it down. Theology is connecting the facts of Scripture. So there are facts in Scripture. There are historical contexts. There are words that pop off the pages. There are characters. There are stories. We connect the facts of Scripture, but to what purpose? First of all, to understand God. I remind you that this book that we study from, this book that hopefully you read from on a daily basis, is not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about God and his character. And every page, every genealogy, every story is intended to point us to God's character, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So theology is connecting the facts of Scripture to understand God, but then also to understand how he relates to us and we relate to him. And so all of those stories of the kings, 
All of those great words that we draw out from Scripture, all of those characters and stories are intended to demonstrate and teach us how God relates to us and we relate to him. But then finally, it's to reveal to us God's purposes in redemptive history. From Genesis to Revelation, from the war of independence to the civil war to the current present day in not only our country or the globe to where everything is heading, the Bible gives us that understanding and that is theology. Do you see how practical it is? And so no matter what topic we are evaluating in our life, it is a theological topic. And so this concept of rest, whether you are getting a sabbatical or taking a vacation or whether you are going to work on Monday or school on Monday, is an opportunity to apply a theology of rest. And so look at the big idea in your notes. The big idea is a question. And the question is for each of us as individuals, will your rest this summer Will your rest this summer accomplish God's intended design? God has designed creation and humanity to experience rest. Will your rest this summer accomplish God's design? So we are going to provide a theology of that, which means we're going to connect a lot of facts of Scripture. So I hope you'll take notes. I hope you'll follow along, and I hope this will provide you a framework to understand and apply rest in your lives. Let's begin our understanding by looking at two cities. Two cities. And if you went to the Heritage Christian Academy graduation yesterday, you might think I'm stealing from Dr. Aquila. He was actually stealing from me. Actually, no, there was no stealing. But he spoke about this. I want to frame our understanding of rest by beginning with an understanding that we are presented with two cities. And the first city is actually found in Genesis 2.15. Would you turn back there? And I've always wanted to say this. It's page two in those Bibles in the seats in front of you. Genesis chapter two. This concept of cities actually helps us better understand everything in our lives everything beyond just rest. It will help you approach work tomorrow. It will help you approach school. It will help you approach marriage and parenting and singleness. This concept of two cities is gold. It is foundational. And if you want to study it a little bit more, here's three books I would commend to you. The first one is by Graham Goldsworthy, and it is called Homeward Bound. And it does an amazing job painting a biblical theology or understanding of the big story of Scripture and how city and Sabbath and rest all intertwine and come together. The second one is a book in the series, The Short Studies in Biblical Theology. It's another story about Sabbaths and sabbaticals and how that actually comes into play in our current era of redemptive history. And then the other one is actually one for men, one for women, written by the same family, David and Shauna Murray. David wrote the book Reset, focused on men, and then Shauna and David wrote a book called Refresh, focusing on women. I highly commend any of these to be on your reading list for the summer. Here's what Graham Goldsworthy says in his book Homeward Bound. The real essence of a city is not in the buildings or the structures. Although that's often what we think, isn't it? 
We don't necessarily think of a rural town in Kansas as a city, but we do all think of New York as a city. But Graham is right when he says, ultimately, God's perspective is that the essence of a city is not ultimately the structures or the building, but it is this. It is the society. And more specifically, it's how the society meaningfully interacts with one another and safely interacts with each other. So the first example of a city is actually God's prototype of the ultimate city and is found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. It says that the Lord God took the man, took Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is the first city. As God designed cities for his creation, the first city is the Garden of Eden. Remember, it's not about the buildings or the structures. It's about human beings meaningfully interacting with each other. But listen to it more specifically as we unpack 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. Meaningfully interacting with one another means that we execute God's intended design. Having dominion, being fruitful and multiplying working the garden, keeping it holy. That is the meaningful interaction that God intends for human beings to have with one another. And then also look at chapter 2, verse 24. It's intended to be done in community. Do you see it in the text? God did not leave man alone. He made for him a helper suitable. And in that marriage example, in that marriage pattern, he's reminding humans that we are designed to live in community. That means that somebody living as a hermit in the mountains, in the wilderness, is not living out God's design. Now, that may be their personality, but that's not God's design. We all have different capacities, don't we? Some people are fueled by people. Some people are drained by people. But that's what the gospel does, is it levels the playing field, doesn't it? If you're fueled, it reminds you to scale back. If you're drained, it reminds you to dial up. God has designed us to live out meaningful relationships in community, carrying out his design, cultivating holiness. This is the prototype. But I want you to see in chapter 3, the epicenter is not just the humanity. It's not just carrying out God's design. It's not just carrying out and stewarding holiness in community. It's actually found in a very creative way in chapter 3 and verse 8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Would you do a favor for me? Would you circle the word walking? And then right out to the side, Leviticus 26 and verse 12. This Hebrew term, walking, is not just the physical expression of putting one foot in front of the other. This word walking, as it's used in Leviticus by the same author, by the way, as Genesis 3.8 describes in Genesis 26, 12, the dwelling of God with his people and the dwelling of his people with God through the tabernacle. This was God's design that the city of God would be the place where ultimately at the epicenter, God dwelt with his people and his people dwelt with God. That's the city of God. That's the city God's designed. But unfortunately, we have Genesis 3, don't we? God's design was corrupted. 
Goldsworthy says again in his book that the city is then presented in a surprising way very early in the biblical story as humankind's first attempt to find rest without God. I'm going to show you that even in the middle of work, God designed his city to be restful. But because of the fall and man's application of the human heart of sin, their attempt to find rest apart from God is actually expressed in Genesis 11. Would you turn over there? Genesis 11, even at the top of your English Bibles, describing what that paragraph is about, tells us that this chapter begins with the account of the Tower of Babel. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's actually an indictment. And as people migrated from the east after the flood, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and, look at this, settled there. Now, this idea of settling there in and of itself is not necessarily wrong, but they are not living out the mandate of God for humanity. God said in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But these people are saying, no, 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 no. We are going to settle and stay in one spot. We're going to build a city, verse 4 says. What was the objective Look at what it says, to let us make a name for ourselves. See, friends, a lot of times people will think that the sin of the city of Babel was the tower. It wasn't the tower. It was the motivation. It was the motivation of the heart for the city, for the tower. It was to make a name for themselves. And then at the end of verse 4, it says, Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, directly going against God's design." And friends, this is always what the city of man produces. This is the second city. And in fact, what's fascinating about this Hebrew term translated Babel here is that it's the same Hebrew term that elsewhere is translated Babylon. And while there is a historical city of Babylon, ultimately it's the allegorical city of Babylon that I want us to focus on. There is the city of man that is focused on self, self preservation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In fact, listen to this Babylon becomes the symbolic city for people relating to each other in the meaningful ways defined by the world system. That's it. Remember what Graham Goldsworthy said. A city is the people that come together to relate to each other in a meaningful way. The city of God is, according to God's design, according to his standards, according to his glory, the city of man, described as Babylon all throughout Scripture, including Revelation. Revelation is not speaking of Babylon as a city, physical, one location. Revelation is talking about Babylon as a world system that is focused on me, my, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And so friends, we have to remember that where we sit, whether in Olathe or in Kansas City or in the United States or in some other corner of the globe, we are sitting in the city of man. But God has designed us to dwell in the city of God. So so what does God do after Genesis 11? He actually selects an individual, doesn't he? In fact, in chapter 12, it says that God had called out a man named Abram. 
And he told Abram, I want you to go to a land. I want you to go to a home. I want you to go to a place where I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. But what's interesting is about that we need the rest of Scripture to inform us what God was actually doing. So would you turn over to Hebrews, if you would, Hebrews chapter 11. And don't worry, this is the longest point in the sermon. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter of faith. By faith, so-and-so. By faith, so-and-so. Look at what it says about this man that God selected after humanity set up this city that was intended to find rest apart from God. Here's what motivated Abraham. Hebrews 11 verse 10. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city. That is not a throwaway statement. It reminds us that the Bible is a complete story. The author of Hebrews was not writing in a vacuum. The author of Hebrews was looking at the landscape of redemptive history, going back to the Garden of Eden, and in a moment going forward to Jerusalem, and then getting to a place where he's educating the reader that God had designed his people to live in a city that has foundations whose architect and maker is the Lord. So what is the city? Well, if you've studied scripture, you would probably say, well, it's Jerusalem. And that was the next candidate So God had Babylon, which is this world system that had covered the corners of the globe, but he chose one city to put his affection on, and it was on a mountain called Zion. That's why the rest of Scripture will often refer to Jerusalem as Zion, and Zion is Jerusalem. And so God placed his affection on there, and he placed his his beloved king, David, and more importantly, he put his temple in Jerusalem where God's presence dwelt and where his people could dwell with him, and he would dwell with them, and he said his affections on Jerusalem and that appears to be the city of God but listen it's another prototype it's another shadow Jerusalem as a city did not hold up what the ultimate city of God is intended to hold up the people were corrupted they walked away from the purposes of God and that's why Mark 13 exists remember we studied that a few weeks ago Jesus telling his disciples, look at these amazing stones on the temple. Not one will stand on each other. It will be destroyed. Why? Because Jerusalem has looked like the city of man. It's looked like Babylon. And so there's more to the story. There is ultimately a city of God where we will dwell, and it is not physical Jerusalem in Israel. I'm going to show you where it is, but you're going to have to do a little work for it. So would you write these verses down? Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14. Ezekiel 28 verse 14. I don't hear a whole lot of pages turning, turning, so I'm going to explain what's going on here. The header says that this is a lament over the king of Tyre just want to remind you that the Bible often provides patterns through stories, through words, through characters. And so what we see in these verses in Ezekiel 28 is that Ezekiel is talking about a literal king of Tyre, but he's using the patterns and the story of Satan in the garden to show there's a repetition going on here. 
So listen to this in chapter 28 and verse 13. You were in Eden. He's speaking of Satan, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he explains how beautiful Satan was and how glorious he had been created. But then listen to this, verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you on the holy mountain of God. That's so important. Do you see what the author is doing here? Is he's taking Eden and he's describing it as what? The holy mountain of God. I would encourage you to write that down in your notes. Eden, the Bible refers to, and from God's perspective, was the holy mountain of God. Well, write down Psalm 2 and verse 6. The author there is David, most likely. He's most likely speaking specifically about his son Solomon. But as the pattern of Solomon's life played out, it would be repeated and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But listen to what it says in Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Where did God set the kings of Judah? In Jerusalem. And then Psalm 2, 6 goes on to say, my holy hill or my holy mountain. So we saw in Ezekiel 28, the Garden of Eden is referred to as the holy mountain. Here in Psalm 2, verse 6, the actual city of Jerusalem is referred to as the holy mountain. And then would you write down Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. The physical temple and city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., That was the prediction that Jesus gave to his disciples in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And so now that that city, the prototype of the city of God, has been destroyed, what will be the ultimate city of God? And Hebrews 12, 22 tells us. But you have come, the author says, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Where is it, author? He says, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see this in Isaiah 56, verse 7. God moves away from the physical city to the spiritual city that was always God's design. You want to read more about it? You don't have to read one of those three books. Read Revelation 21 and 22. That is the description of the New Jerusalem. And the author, John, uses so many descriptors to point us back to the Garden of Eden. That's what he's doing, and that's the key to understanding the book of Revelation is that the the, the Holy Spirit and and God is giving visions and symbols that, that John uses in describing to point back to the Old Testament, Old Testament vocabulary, Old Testament concepts to show that this is bringing it all together. It is the substance to which all of the shadows have pointed, dwelling with Christ in the city of God. So friends, we must remember that humanity relating to each other meaningfully is always God's design. There are two cities at work. The city of man that has man as the center, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and the city of God that was inaugurated in Christ. Here's a quote. The city of God is the kingdom of God where God's will is done and followed perfectly. It's inaugurated, but not yet complete. Beloved, that's why we don't have any city in the world that looks like the New Jerusalem. Isn't it interesting, even thinking politically, that the centers of liberalism and anti-biblical Christianity are the world cities? 
Why is that? It's not politics, friends. It's the human heart. Because when a city is a conglomerate of people that are pursuing their own interests and doing what is right in their own eyes, and you get them all into a concentrated area, guess what? It's going to be a very liberal place. And so, friends, let's remember what the ultimate issue that is going on. It's two cities. It's not politics. It's not preference. It's two cities. Okay, now that we've established that, now let's move toward rest, but we can't get there yet until we understand work. There are two labors as we look at Scripture. So, friends, we are created as human beings. When we are conceived in our mother's womb, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, we are pursuing the city of man. That's what we long for. That's what we want. That's what resonates with us when we see a commercial. When we see a commercial or an advertisement, we resonate with something that appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, don't we? That's what advertisers are going for. That's what entertainment is for. And so the world has developed this system that is appealing to that, and we willfully pursue that because we are sinners at a heart level. And that manifests itself with this concept of work. In 1981, guitarist Paul Dean from the Canadian group Loverboy, anybody know that group? Don't raise your hand, that's embarrassing. I'm just kidding. I tried this out on my wife this morning. I started singing it to her, and she's like, no, never heard that. So I'm not gonna sing it for you, but Paul Dean was walking on a beach on a Wednesday trying to write a song. And what he noticed is there was nobody on the beach. And he's wondering to himself, where is everybody? They're at work. And people must be at work because they're working for the weekend. There, I did sing it. And I, like, I'm getting the same reaction as my wife. They're like, what? Google it. But he's right. See, see the one work is about working for the objective of comfort. Working for the objective of not working. Working for the objective of retirement. I've heard it said that the 20s are for learning. The 30s are for earning. The 40s and 50s are for burning. And the 60s are for relaxing. Can't wait till I get to the 60s. But you all know that isn't the case. That's why we call Wednesday hump day, because everybody's looking forward to Friday. Why? Because worship is Sunday, right? Why do we look at 60 and 65 as the potential retirement age? Because we want to collect shells. We want to be able to, to, to go to our lake house whenever we want. We want to be able to have a golf course that we can go to every day. And listen, please do not mishear me. There's nothing wrong with retirement. There's nothing wrong with lake houses. There's nothing wrong with golf and collecting seashells. But when our motivation is the motivation of Babylon and appealing to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, we will realize in that moment that it is all vanity. It is all Hebel that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. We studied that a couple years ago. Remember, the word hebel is the word that you describe the smoke that lingers after fire is put out. You can touch it, you can move it, but it doesn't stay. 
But if we buy into the lie of Babylon that we are working for the weekend, if we buy into the lie that somehow I can achieve a status or, 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 or a role in my business or I can own a business or my bank account can look a certain size, somehow that will give me rest and we are following after the lie of Babylon. So what is the work of the city of God? Turn back to Genesis 2. I love this. Never seen this before I studied for this sermon. Genesis 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, that's not the part I hadn't seen, but let me focus on that for a moment. I know we're not all great mathematicians, but does 2 come before or after chapter 3? Before. Chapter 3 is the fall, chapter 2 is pre-fall, and God's design for his city is that his people work. That's interesting. But here's what I discovered. Look at the phrase that's translated right before it. He put him in the garden. Would you circle the word put if you're using the ESV or place, I think is another English translation, and write out to the side, Noah. Now, I'm going to attempt to unpack this because it's awesome to me, and I hope that you can appreciate this, but the word Noah means rest. God rested Adam in a place where he would work. Let me show that to you so you don't have to have a Hebrew dictionary to be able to see that. Look look over at chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, that means he had seen a lot of life, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Why? Why did he call his son's name Noah? Because he had had 182 years of work this side of the fall. And he was hoping, verse 29 tells us, that out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest or Noah. From the work. Here's what I want us to see. Back in Genesis 3:17, God is handing out the judgments for Adam and Eve and the serpent for their sin. And he says to Adam that because you've listened to your wife, I will make work painful. Now I submit to you that, Mar- that Adam's hard work in the garden before the fall produced pain, produce sweat just using muscles. I think the pain that the Lord is describing here when he talks about work is that from this point forward, humans, work is going to be painful, listen to this, to your souls. It's going to be painful to your souls. You're going to have bosses that lord it over you. You're going to have jobs that seem to never get to where you want to get. You will have jobs that don't pay enough. You will have jobs that actually pay too much. And listen, sometimes being paid too much is more of a curse than not being paid enough. And what you've got in this world system that now is corrupted by the fall is this pain of soul because when you work according to the city of man, it will be painful to your soul. But God has always designed us to have work actually produce rest. Listen to what John Piper says. 
He says that productivity is restful to his soul. When he does work, even if it's painful, even if it produces sweat, if it brings glory to God, if it benefits others around me, if it gives me the ability to steward well the funds that God has entrusted me with, if it lets me use my skills and my talents to the glory of God in the improvement of creation, guess what? Even painful physical work, even long physical work, even many more years than you intended before you retired type of work can be restful the way that God designed. That's pretty cool. And so we see two cities, we see two labors, the city of man work will bring pain to our souls, the city of God work will bring rest to our souls, which brings us to number three, two tools, two tools. God knew that we were frail human beings, didn't he? We are frail. We can't just keep going and going. Now, I know there's some of you that that can, but at some point, multiple days without sleep, you're going to crash. You've got to rest, and Jesus knew that. In fact, in Mark 6.31, there was a period where his disciples were going so hard in ministry that it says they weren't even able to eat, and Jesus' solution is not just pull it up by the bootstraps. He says, come away with me to a desolate place and rest for a while. God, the creator, understood that his humanity would need rest. But what kind of rest? Well, the first tool that God gives us is actually introduced to us in Genesis 2. Would you look at Genesis 2 and verse 2? It says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. The word rest there is actually the Hebrew term Shabbat. It means to stop, to come to an end. So what the Lord creator God did there is he's busy working and creating all of this. He gets to day seven and he stops that activity, but he doesn't stop working, does he? In fact, that's what Jesus says in response to the Pharisees who are accusing his disciples of working. He says, listen, the Father has been working from creation till now, and I think there were a few Sabbaths in between. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, work itself on the Sabbath is a good thing, but the right kind of work. And so the first tool that God gave his people is the actual Sabbath. But let me unpack this because there's a lot of confusion with Christians today. Some people believe that we should still observe Sabbath just as the Jews did on Saturday, on the last day of the week. Others believe that through Christ, the new Sabbath is the Lord's Day, Sunday, where we celebrate the Lord's resurrection through gathering together like we're doing right now. But is this concept of Sabbath, is this instruction of Sabbath a creation mandate that is intended to stretch all the generations of history? And the answer to that is no. Let me begin to prove that by showing you that the first command to take a day of rest actually occurs in Exodus 16. 
That means for hundreds of years, the people of God had worshiped God effectively without a recorded command for them to stop work and to observe a Sabbath. That did not occur until God gave his people manna in the wilderness and said on day six, gather multiple groups of manna so that on the seventh day, you can set it aside and stop your busyness. He also provided a Sabbath year, Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. That was intended to let the land rest. They were an agrarian society. They were farmers. And so the society and the land was to take a rest on the seventh year. And then there was also, on the 70th year, a Sabbath jubilee where the busyness of slavery and the responsibility of slavery, when you would sell yourself to someone else because you could not pay for your own debts or you could pay for your own living and you would be a slave, on the 70th year you were set free. If you had to sell your land to raise finances on the 70th year, it would go back to the original owner. And so all of these were tools that God gave his people to do this. Please write this down because this is at the epicenter of what God's design is for rest. To stop, to look back, to look up, and to look forward. Let me say that again. God intends for his people to rest by stopping, looking back, looking up, and looking forward. That is the point of the Sabbath. The point that God makes in Exodus 31, 17, when he says that anyone who works on the Sabbath must be executed is not because they worked, but because they were following after the city of man, not the city of God, and God takes that seriously. And so God gave to his people, Israel, an actual Sabbath day, an actual Sabbath year, and an actual jubilee year because he knew God's people need tools. But that's not for us today as Christians. Why? Because of the second tool. And I would encourage you to write this down. It is Christ rest. It's Christ rest. Let me begin to explain that by drawing your attention to Genesis 2.2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done, and there's no mention of evening and morning were the seventh day. Why? Well, many commentators believe, and I believe also, that that is because this idea of looking back, looking up, and looking forward is intended to be an ongoing reality for Christians. So go back to Matthew 28. I'm sorry, Matthew 11. This is where we started. And I'm going to whet your appetite for number four, and then I'll conclude. 11 verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden. He knows that is going to be every human We are going to be weary. We are frail creatures. We are physically and emotionally and most of all spiritually going to get to places in our lives where we labor and are heavy laden and we need help. And so what Jesus says is, come to me and I will give you rest. But here's the rest that he's talking about. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29, and learn from me. True rest is learning from Christ. 
through his word, through discipleship, through obedience, through abiding. That is true rest. It's not passive. It's not lazy. And so God, the creator, knew that we needed this. We needed tools. And so for his people during the years of Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, gave them tools of Sabbath, Sabbath year, Jubilee. To us today, we have Christ. And I'm going to unpack that by looking at number four, the one objective. The one objective. Turn to Matthew 12. And this is where we'll bring it all together. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on Sabbath. That was very important. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat it. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're saying that a legal violation has occurred. And the issue is not the picking of grain, but it is the day of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is living under the Mosaic law. The, the Sabbath law was in play in their day. Jesus looks at that concept and sees the concern and recognizes they don't get it. Because the religious leaders thought that the ultimate satisfaction was fulfilling religion, and Jesus is going to point them to know it is relationship. Listen to what he says in verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning, as Mark says it, as we studied months ago, the Sabbath was designed to be a shadow to point to the substance of Christ. And now that Christ is here, Christ is our Sabbath rest. I'll unpack that by showing us three points. Would you turn, hopefully you're there, to Mark chapter 12, I mean Matthew chapter 12, sorry. The first point I want you to see is that there is value in stopping the busyness. And friend, I hope that you will own this. Some of you can take on a lot of busyness. I was talking to a pastor friend and telling him that I was taking a sabbatical, that we'd been gifted with the sabbatical, and he says, Jeff, I, I respect that. He said, I, a sabbatical would drive me nuts. He talked about all the things he's doing this summer, all the conferences, all the traveling for ministry, and as I was getting exhausted just listening to him. But God has wired him to have a capacity where ministry fuels him in that way, where if he took some time off with his family, that would be more draining to him. And that's just the way God's designed us. But both of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum, need to stop the busyness. And friend, I'm looking out on a lot of high producers in our church as senior producer in ministry. And I know that's your personality. And I know that's how you're wired. And I know that's probably every area of your life. But friend, God has designed us to stop the busyness of life. And there's value in that. And so whatever that looks like for you, heed that warning that we are batteries. We only have so much energy and through the Sabbath example of the Old Testament, the ministry example of Jesus, and the instruction of the New Testament, God has designed us to see the value in stopping the busyness of life. But number two, we need to be centered on our priorities. Centered on our priorities. I love this. 
Matthew 12, Jesus says, the Son of Man, who he's describing himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. But what does he mean by that? Well, he actually unpacks that in the entire chapter 12. Look at verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you see that in the text? See, see, listen, what Jesus is doing is he's actually tying the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem all together in him. And he's saying something greater than the temple. Who served in the temple? Priests. Would you write that out to the side? Look down at chapter 12, verse 41. He's talking about Jonah using the patterns of Jonah's life and ministry to find their substance in the pattern of Jesus' ministry. And look at what he says at the end of verse 41. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What profession was Jonah? Prophet. Would you write that out to the side? And if you've been coming to Ascend for a while, you know that this threefold office, this threefold responsibility of prophet, priest, and king is central to the story of Scripture. So he's greater than the temple, greater, the greater priest. He's greater than Jonah, the greater prophet. But then look at verse 42. He says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What office did Solomon hold? King. See, what Jesus is using by the illustration of the Sabbath is to say, look, the Sabbath is intended to point you to what the center of our priorities should be. The prophet, priest, and king par excellence Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Paul says this in another way in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, don't focus on the days and the years and the festivals. Those were shadows pointing to the substance who is Christ. So friend, here's the understanding and application as we approach rest heading into the summer. Make Christ your priority. And so if you're making plans to go to Disney or go to the lake house or do whatever you're going to do that you consider rest, those are all great, but view those things through the lenses of Christ. Take time while you're out on the wave runner and be amazed at the expanse of water and how the ecosystem of the wildlife in the water continues to function without anybody helping it out. Look at the sky as you're driving cross country and see the clouds and see the rain and how God causes the rain to fall and the good and the evil. Look at all the problems that are going on in society and understand that that's the city of man at work and we're heading toward the city of God. Do you see how even this mindset can take all of these things that we're planning for the summer and can actually produce this kind of rest in our lives when we center our priorities on Christ? So there's value in stopping the busyness. We need to center our priorities, but then number three, we need to find our true rest in Christ. The author of Hebrews helps us one last time. Would you turn to Hebrews 3? The author of Hebrews is describing the Jews who were wandering in the wilderness. And he says to them, In verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's interesting is that every one of those members of the generation had followed Sabbath. So so, so how can that be? How could they have stopped their work 
How could they have observed Sabbath, but then God says, they're not going to be entered in my rest because the rest is not the day. The rest is not the religion. The rest, chapter 4 and verse 9 says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that rest? Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. So what is the objective? Obey and abide in Christ. Spend time with him. Pursue him. Point others to him. Make him be at the epicenter of your daily thoughts, speech, and behavior, and you will experience true My family is heading out for three months, but we are not going to rest apart from Christ. We'll be doing activities. We'll be going to places that we love, being with people that we love. We'll be missing our church family that we love. But we are going to be looking back, looking up, and looking forward. We're going to have a coach counselor that's going to help us to make sure that Sally and I as individuals are recalibrated in our walk with Christ, to make sure we're setting up rhythms going forward to be healthy in Christ, to more effectively minister to you. We're going to be anchored in one church for over a month. We're going to try to apply these principles, but some of you might feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. That's why there's going to be a part two to this message on August 28th, and I invite you to be here for that.